A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Hi, I'm Tiffany Wan, and you're listening to the Wheel Suckers podcast. Hi, everyone. On this episode of the Wheel Suckers podcast, we interview Tiffany Lam. Tiffany is a researcher at LSE Cities and has expertise in gender and active sustainable urban mobility. I invited Tiffany to be on the podcast after she was one of our panelists at our Women and Gender Variant WAG Fest last November. She brought a lot of expertise to the table about the science and research behind the gender imbalance in cycling. Hope you enjoy. Hi, I'm your captain, Alex. I look after social media marketing events at Look Mung No Hands, a cycling cafe bar workshop on 49 Old Street, London, and I'm joined by my stoker, Jenny Stoked, in the rear. That didn't sound good. <laughs> Stoked in the rear. Uh, I'm the director at the London Bike Kitchen. We teach people how to fix their own bikes through classes, drop-in sessions, and our Women in Gender Variant WAG Nights. And today, we have a very special guest. My name is Tiffany, and I am a gender and cycling researcher I started cycling in Washington, D.C. about, gosh, like four, five years ago. Um, And I just got ripped into cycling advocacy with the local organization there, the Washington Area Bicyclist Association. They had just started a women and bicycles group to get more women cycling. And I think that was the first time I had learned about the gender gap in cycling And at the time, I was working at a law firm doing civil rights cases, mainly sex discrimination lawsuits. And it was just completely eye-opening for me that there was such a stark gender gap in cycling, like 75% of everyday cyclists who commute are men. And this is consistent across English-speaking, low-cycling contexts. So that's the U.S., the U.K., Canada, Australia, New Zealand. Um, So this was completely fascinating to me. And that led me to London, where I did my master's at the London School of Economics at the Cities program. And I wrote my dissertation on the gender gap in cycling in London. And that's how I met Jenny. I had reached out to a lot of bike shops in East London since I 
have always lived in East London since I've been here. And a lot of the bike shops either did not respond or were very enthusiastic to meet me, but then it was just a completely different story once I showed up and talked about my research. Uh, but Jenny was super receptive and interested and very on it. <laughs> well, it resonated with my experience as a female in the bike industry. And to be honest, I was kind of shocked. Um, and I was curious as to how did you approach, how did you choose the bike shops? How did you approach them? Did you visit all of them? I had familiarized myself with all the bike shops around me. So I'd either been to them before or had friends who had gotten things done there. And I emailed a bunch of them and sometimes showed up in person so I only went to the ones who were responsive through email or um, when you just showed up and said, can you talk to the manager? And I just started off by showing them Transport for London statistics showing that despite the increased investment in cycling infrastructure in London over the past decade, decade and a half, 74% of cycling journeys in London are made by men. So I just kind of start with this, okay, this is what TFL is saying. Um, do you think this, or why do you think this is, or how is this reflected in your bike shop? And a lot of them were just very adamant that that couldn't be true because a lot of their customers are women. Or if you just look on the street, there are lots of women cycling. And one manager of this bike shop in East London told me that I should just sit outside and count all the women cycling down the streets there's so many the guy lose count basically what? denying that there was a gender gap and it was just really interesting how kind of on the offense they were as if I had personally insulted them when I was just saying this is a statistic from transport for London another bike shop I walked in was completely empty and I'd emailed them before so they knew I was coming and the manager there was just like, yeah, I can take a break and I have other people working. So let's uh, step outside and have a chat. And as soon as I mentioned these this 74% statistic, he just kind of froze on me and was like, you know, I have to get back to work when the shop was empty. And he just like <laughs> literally got up and walked away from me. Um, <laughs> wow. And yeah, very rude. And they were all just very personally offended by something that wasn't ever intended to be an insult in any way, shape, or form. Yeah, any theories as to why? I feel like people have a very hard time talking about diversity and inclusion issues without seeming or without feeling somehow guilty, especially if they haven't thought about it before or... If it's being brought to their attention, they feel like they should have known or should have done something. And maybe because they haven't, they feel like they have to cover up for something. Mm -hmm. uh, instead of engaging with it, they kind of just deny it or just go mm -hmm. on the offensive. By denying it, they're kind of saying, well, there isn't a problem. So why should I be worried about mm -hmm. it? Because if they go, yes, there is a problem, I guess they're nervous. You're going to go, and what are you doing? <laughs> yeah. But it's funny that that was their instinctual response was to, <laughs> to be really defensive. But I, I find that statistic you just said that it's in English-speaking countries across the board, 
<laughs> that statistic holds up. And that blows my mind because I'm sitting here going, why only English speaking countries then? What are, what are people who don't speak English doing differently? Well, I guess there's other countries that are always looked up to as cycling models are Germany, the Netherlands, and Denmark. And I don't think it's as much about the English language thing and as it is about just the political system that these countries had governments that decided uh, not to follow the post-war trajectory of building more highways and trying to get more people to move out to the suburbs and buy bigger houses, bigger cars, and they instead invested in a more pedestrian and cyclist-friendly network of streets. That's like mind-blowing. I'm just sitting here right <laughs> it's now, like, oh, everything's connected. Yeah. It goes back so far. <laughs> yeah. And going back to the bike shop thing, mm. another interesting thing was that a lot of mm. these male bike shop workers that I spoke to had this idea that I know at least one woman who cycles on a pretty much daily basis. Therefore, there is no gender gap. That was like their kind of logic, which they used to deny the 74% mm. statistics. Like, no, that's not true. My girlfriend bikes every day. Or no, my friends do that. They're women. So it's it's another weird thing when they take like one like section where one tiny fraction of their overall experience in the world and apply as universal truth. That's kind of quite common though, I think. Yeah, it's like, oh, I know one person who does it, so it's that's, fine. That's just the way it <laughs> So everybody does. Yeah. yeah. From your research, like, what did you hope to find? And then kind of what outcomes, how can we address this issue? Because people are always looking for the silver bullet, right? The one thing. And it's yeah. just never one thing. But, like, what are the things? The many bullets. <laughs> Maybe I shouldn't yeah. use bullets. Sorry. <laughs> just shoot oh, all God, the male no. cyclists. <laughs> That'll even it out. I guess my hypothesis going in, I was trying to challenge the fixation on infrastructure, I think, especially in London, the most accepted solution to get more people cycling and to get more women cycling is just build more super highways or quiet ways, just the material infrastructure, which I'm not denying is important, but I think there is more to it. And it's kind of like, okay, build more infrastructure, but infrastructure for whom and for what? So I guess my hypothesis going in was that infrastructure is gendered and infrastructure that works for one person, like a very fit, able-bodied white male may not work for every single person who wants to or doesn't want to cycle in London. And so I was interested in what policymakers, what's happening from the top-down side of things. How are policymakers, engineers and planners thinking about or engaging with the gender gap. They think about gender and how different people approach infrastructure and how different people have different preferences about the infrastructure they would feel safe and comfortable riding in when they sit down and design superhighways or quiet ways, or just when they think about, okay, we have to build X more kilometers of cycling infrastructure. How do they think about gender and 
identity and how that impacts one's mode of transport. Not just thinking about one person, yeah, yeah. the old mammal. <laughs> <laughs> and it was funny because um, as silly as the mammal and the hipster stereotypes are, when I looked at policy documents like um, what Boris Johnson had put out, the mayor's vision for cycling in London, and the follow-up one that he released before his term ended, he refers to mammals and hipsters. So he says something where he praises the mammals as like the admirable white clad men or something like that. And then there's another reference to hipsters about how in East London, a bike is the fifth limb for everybody under 30. And these hip Londoners on their fixie bikes, uh, cities, images and stereotypes get reproduced and they're kind of officially sanctioned by the mayor, which mm-hmm. is that from a policy perspective, it's perfectly okay if the mammals and the hipsters continue to be the cycling demographic that people think and care about. It's reaffirming it. It's almost kind of totally. when you create, yeah, when you talk about creating space for people like that, that's the only space that gets made. Oh, even that language. It's crazy. The fifth limb is really ableist. Yeah. Because mm-hmm. I was just thinking about wheels for well-being. But I had never thought about step-free access issues, yeah, which are huge then when you look at it and you're like, I need to be able to get on a, a tube that has step-free access. There's only like, what, not even half? It's and I'm insane. like, are you kidding? Like yeah. stations that don't have elevators. And I'm like, why aren't we? The argument is if you make it accessible for the most vulnerable, then you make it accessible for everyone. And yeah. people don't think that way. No. Like they just because yeah. all those transport planners are probably white male able bodied. Yeah. They see themselves re- even if they don't ride a bike, they probably see themselves reflected in those people that are using it. Mm-hmm. Like, well, that's that's just the way it is. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We did an event with Cat, who'd written a book, Bikes and Bloomers, and then Laura Laker. She does a lot of like writing for the Guardian about cycling infrastructure. She even said just the simplest thing of like some of the way the turnings on the highways or these cycle paths don't suit a cargo bike you know you're like oh yeah because they've got a wide turning circle Mm -hmm. i didn't even think about that you're like oh i'm on a bike this should be enough space for a bike but some bikes are even kind of larger if it's a tricycle or you know you're like my god (laughs) yeah and i think that's why we have to challenge the idea of like just more infrastructure because one person's infrastructure is another person's barrier totally what would be your dream setup then? Because we, we did touch on touch on infrastructure, but are there yeah. other things that people can do to make sure we are we're closing this gap? That is a big question. <laughs> <laughs> too big, Jenny. Tell it back. <laughs> You've got two minutes. Go. Yeah. Well, I think in terms of infrastructure, we do need more infrastructure, but that's not just the hard, quote-unquote, hard infrastructure, the material infrastructure of bike lanes and bike racks. It's a lot of the, quote-unquote, soft infrastructure, too, and I don't really like that term because it seems demeaning, but by that I mean, like, encouragement and education schemes. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which 
is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. This Mother's Day, celebrate the extraordinary women in your life with a heartfelt gift from Blue Nile. Whether it's for your mom, a mother figure, or yourself as a mom, find that perfect piece to express your love and appreciation. Explore Blue Nile's exquisite pearls and mesmerizing gemstones that she's sure to love. Enjoy fast shipping options like guaranteed free shipping and returns. Make this Mother's Day unforgettable with a piece from Blue Nile. Right now, get up to 50% off at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction and free shipping. And that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. Especially since studies show that people who don't cycle and groups that are underrepresented in cycling, so women, people with disabilities, all that inspiration and encouragement are really instrumental in getting them to start and continue cycling. So if policymakers treated education and encouragement schemes with the same importance as they treated superhighways and quiet ways, then that would be a good start. I also think that the cycling world has to really diversify from within. So that's not just bike shops, but also like transport engineers who work on cycling infrastructure, planners who come up with the networks of cycling infrastructure, all of that. There just has to be a lot more representation from within. Yeah, well, that's easy. <laughs> we'll do that. We wanted to talk about this research is what led you to create the zine. Thank you, Jenny, for that, because she was the one who suggested it and put me in touch with Ella Blue. But I was looking for a way to disseminate my research in a more accessible way, uh, so not going the academic journal route. I'd been thinking about maybe writing a book, but then it seemed it would be a much longer process, which wasn't the problem, but just because there's so much momentum around cycling and achieving like Sadiq Khan's target to get 80% uh, journeys in London to be made by foot, cycle, or public transport by 2041. All those, like all these cities have ambitious targets to increase cycling within the next 10, 20, 30, however many years. And it just seemed a very urgent issue and to see would not only be accessible to a wider range of people, but it would be out more quickly. So it just seemed like the ideal thing to do is just create a platform for women cyclists to share their experiences, especially since with all these really ambitious cycling targets in London and many other cities, 
I think a lot of policymakers are concentrating on quantifying like the health benefits of cycling or the environmental benefits and carbon emissions saved and things like that, which are definitely important. But you can't really quantify things like just the intrinsic joy of cycling and enhanced mobility for women, especially, or just how bicycles can be free modes of transport for a lot of people, which enables access to education, jobs. All those things are really important and valuable, and you can't quantify that the same way you can say, well, 41% cyclists are less likely to get cancer after this age. Uh, So I think the scene also creates a platform to celebrate and acknowledge all the unquantifiable qualitative benefits of cycling, especially for women. How many in the scene? I think there are about 12 or 13 in this issue. A lot of them I found through my dissertation research because I interviewed a lot of women cyclists. I shared my research and my research findings so far, and I had a lot of really interesting conversations. So that was another thing. That was one of my favorite parts about doing my dissertation, just having all these really interesting conversations with different women about their perspectives, cycling in London, and just what they thought about London's alleged cycling revolution. So the zine was just a way to continue those conversations and somehow commemorate them more by having them written. I was really just hoping to give the people who had written pieces for this issue a platform to be seen and heard and just further comment on anything they had written and just showcase some of the cool work they're doing to get more women cycling. So it was difficult because almost everybody wanted to be on the panel. It's great that people just want to talk about it. That was also an, an issue that came up when I was telling people, okay, I, I, did, I didn't want to make people write or feel like they had to write a ton. So it's like, well, you can cap and out like 300, 400 words. And I pretty much got double that from almost everybody, which hasn't been a problem since there's space for more words, obviously. But it's great that this is just something that people obviously care about, want to talk about, and want to keep talking about. Pretty much it's the same. Yeah. (laughs) We do always champion that, hearing their voices and being able to hear what people think, and I think it's really important. How was it working with Ellie? It was great working with Ellie. It's been cool to see this scene materialize so quickly, because I think it was just... January when we were emailing about this and she was just so supportive and just like yeah go ahead and then it just happened and I think in April it was out and it was just really cool seeing it from start to finish in such a relatively short time period and just seeing the very positive reception so far. I think that's the beauty of the zine, right? Yeah. Like zines, you don't have to wait for stuff to get, like, yeah. go to an official printing press or whatever. You yeah. just do it at a copy machine. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And with making more issues, it's like, with the book, if you meet someone later, it's like, oh, I have much more t- material for you to source from. Like, oh, well, it's already published. It'll take a while. But it's like, okay, great. We can start another issue. That's really good. Yeah. 
where can people find it actually because you only have a few copies available tonight <laughs> yeah so there are two bookshops in east london that are selling them pages of hackney in clapton and artwords they have a shortage in broadway market location i think they're going to start selling them at broadway market and then maybe sell copies at the shortage location as well depending on sales broken spoke co-op in oxford also is selling copies for people who are in oxford otherwise it's available online at microcosm publishing's website do you think you'll want write a second i am oh you are (laughs) i can't wait have you chatted with rachel aldred about the research she's done she was doing the near miss project uh, not recently. We chatted when uh, I was doing my dissertation research. That was two years ago. I yes, yes. That, that I think definitely feeds into kind of yeah. your work. Yeah, I really like the Near Miss Project um, because a lot of those like injury and or accident, which I don't think is the right word, uh, yeah. but injury Gosh. and collision, they only count actual crashes and not near misses so when you're looking or when you're trying to evaluate the safety of a particular cycling route and there are zero crashes but like a hundred near misses that doesn't enter into the this isn't very safe picture or dialogue it's tricky because i really value that project it's just remembering to do that it's really tricky I find I have quite a few near misses and I'll get home and by the time I've got home I kind of forget. You've phased it out. Yeah. And it's it's getting into that been desensitized. Go and fill it out, <laughs> go and do a form like it's yeah. almost like remembering where I was, like what street. That's also quite tricky. Or like how it happened. Because things just happen and you're like, whoop, yep, you know. I feel like I should um photograph license plates and just like shame people online. But of course, when it happens, you just want to get on with you it. You just want to get away. Yeah. yeah. It's actually, I mean, I've seen it numerous times, people having near misses or accidents. And the police were like, you should have taken a picture of them. You know, and you're like, I was too busy trying to not die. die. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I don't cycle with my phone in my pocket, so I don't even know. The route now is a lot of people are getting cameras. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So they're just recording all the time. Yeah. But I mean, for me, I'm like, whoa, is that really the next step? Even if you've got visual evidence and you have to record like what two minutes before two minutes after the incident even then you submit it the police will still be like meh not enough and it just shows that police aren't really trained in how to deal with these kind of cyclist issues and while they say they do give police officers uh cycling training they do have some police officers on bikes it doesn't really seem to follow through to how they treat cycling crashes yeah or just generally treat cyclists no. yeah <laughs> mm-hmm. i think it's also training life. bystanders people yeah. other people walking or cycling or driving just around to intervene on your behalf or help out in some way my experience of cycling in japan because I lived there for three years, was there is no infrastructure. People can cycle wherever they want. They can cycle on pavement or on the road. And people just are cool with it. They respect each other. They It's a different... It's a, That's why I'm like, it's not always an infrastructure issue. Yeah. It's like a psychological issue. 
I wonder in Western countries where it's really encouraged to, you know, be number one. It's it's the individual, right? Is the the be all and end all. Whereas when you look at like Asian countries, it's about the greater good. And people don't want to stand out because they don't want to individually stand out. They want to be part of the group. And I wonder if that has uh, is something to do with it, obviously. But yeah. I, are we lost? Like, can yeah, we I change? Think, I think with the UK, like, <laughs> lots of people are, like, raised to hate cyclists. Lots of, like, media, the way they talk about cyclists, it's this current, it's a note that mm. is, like... Because I tweeted about it the other day, which really made me laugh. But I was cycling in, like, behind a group of other cyclists. Like, we were all individuals, but we ended up in a long line. And some, someone was trying to cross the road, but the, all these cyclists kept coming through. And I saw it, it was like, <laughs> but when it got to me, it was like, I fucking hate cyclists. It came out like, don't think they said it so I would hear it, but it was such a, like, a hatred. And it was like, whoa, like, <laughs> that's just people people thinking that all the time. I think. <laughs> In the way you're annoying, you're preventing me from doing something. The whole road tax thing as well. Like, oh, for yeah. the UK, I think it's an ingrained hatred. It's a tall really hatred. Sad. And that it's gets passed on. That idea yeah, of yeah. cyclists don't pay road tax because that hasn't the, been that, the case for oh, That's so not true. <laughs> it's, like, it's, it's like an urban myth that's just yeah. been passed on generation to generation. Yeah. Like, people parrot it back to each other and yeah. it's not enough people are debunking it. Yeah. And then that I feel like just with the in the UK and from my experience, just there's a lot of hatred. And it's kind of ingrained, and, and it's like, ugh, you weirdo. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> How could you not drive? So, yeah, it does my head in. Uh, the Japan thing is interesting because there was a recent study from the Harvard School of Public Health that was looking at uh, Latino communities in different U.S. cities and interviewing them about their cycling infrastructure preferences and what would get them to cycle more. And a lot of the Latino immigrant communities said that they would prefer to cycle with friends. So if um, lanes were wider and people could go two abreast or even three abreast, that would make them more inclined to go versus like narrow lanes where it's just like one mm-hmm. at a time, which is kind of the norm here. Coming at it from a, a more social aspect. Yeah. Than like an utilitarian transport. A to B thing. Oh yeah, because that also annoys me that it, the two abreasting is something that cyclists are taught. And when you do do it, yeah, cars go completely insane. Yeah, They're like, yeah. what are you doing? <laughs> they lose their minds. They're like, oh my God, there's two of you and you're side by side. You've teamed up somehow. You've become friends. <laughs> I saw Islington CC like, post the thing like, it's safer for a cyclist to cycle two abreast. And like, yeah, but not for my mental health, it's not. Like, yeah. <laughs> Ah. The funny thing is drivers think you're, like, taking up so much space when you do that. It's like, well, two people are still taking up a lot less space on two bikes than you and your giant box of metal. <laughs> yeah. I just don't see it. It's mad. So, okay. in conclusion. <laughs> we're still fucked, but we're getting there. Yeah. <laughs> By the scene, it will help. Thank you. Thank yeah. you. Thanks, Thanks for having me. Hi, if you like what we do, please, please like, rate, and subscribe. And don't forget to share this show with someone you know who likes cycling podcasts. Jenny and me would really appreciate it. Until next time, bye.
Normally, being a little extra might be a bit much, but not when it comes to healthcare. That's why United Healthcare's Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, supplement your primary plan so you manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.